Welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast, a podcast incorporating narratives about facing and navigating adversity, a mixture of people, their experiences and professional psychological discussion. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo. I'm a qualified and regulated psychologist with over 20 years experience of mental health, disability and human behaviour. I want to share people's stories of navigating adversity in the hope that through being heard, a dose of compassion and some understanding, we can help others in the face of adversity too. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Adversity Psychologist podcast. Today I'm absolutely thrilled to have Dr. Marianne Trent with us, who is a clinical psychologist and entrepreneur and author of The Grief Collective, Clinical Psychologist Collective and the soon-to-be book The Aspiring Psychologist Collective. Marianne is also the host of the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. I am absolutely delighted to be talking grief with Marianne today. Marianne is a specialist in grief, but also trauma. And I want to talk a little bit and learn a little bit about how grief may manifest itself. We often think of grief as being lost through death, but actually grief can mean many things and present in many different ways. So I'm absolutely delighted to get on and talk with her and get her insights. So I am so super delighted to have Dr. Marianne Trent on today, who I see as an entrepreneur, and I know you describe yourself as that. You're a clinical psychologist and author of The Grief Collective, but also The Clinical Psychologist Collective, and soon to be new book as well. And you're also a podcast host as well. Welcome and thank you for coming on my podcast. Would you like to tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do? Sure. Thank you so much for inviting me, Tara. It's really nice to see your face. (laughs) <laughs> we speak a lot. Um, it's lovely to you face to face. So as we said, I do do quite a few different bits and pieces. So my clinical specialism is in trauma, um, which encompasses grief, of course. Um, and I, f- I found my way into grief really through my experiences losing my own father in 2017. That led me putting together um, the Grief Collective. Um, and since then, I've just, you know, done what interests me and what there's an audience for as well. Um, So I now support aspiring psychologists as well. But everything I do, I just really enjoy. And I think that's, I think what attracted me to you is that that entrepreneur part of you that just puts yourself out there and that puts most important, and we talk about this a lot, don't we? High quality psychological advice is something I think that really makes people feel safe and contained and there needs to be more of it. So off the back of the pandemic, so I've been talking a lot about coping and adversity, which was the kind of idea behind this podcast is grief. So a lot of people during the pandemic will have lost people through COVID or have lost people during COVID, but also what grief is in terms of a concept and how some of us may be struggling with different types of grief and loss of things that may not have been able to happen during the pandemic. So I thought it's quite a wide subject, but I thought of you in terms of how we can help people. So we're kind of two years in, think about grief, different types of grief and how they may have been impacted, but also to kind of normalise some of those feelings that if you're struggling with something that you think perhaps doesn't qualify as grief, whether we can start to deconstruct that today. So I guess one of the things I was going to start off with, if that's all right with you, is to kind of think about just what is grief and how can it manifest? So if someone listening today is not sure, how do we define it and what might we want to look out for? Okay, well, I'm going to try and describe grief without using the word grief, which I think is probably a good place to start. Um, I don't know about you, but when I was um, training and when I was in my first qualified roles, um, the word yearning really creeped me out. (laughs) 
really felt a bit like disgusting. It all felt a bit sexual, really. But actually, what I've learned about grief is that it's kind of about yearning. It's about wishing something could be different. It can feel like a real visceral human part of yourself is missing. And what I see grief as is kind of all the nerve endings, all the parts of ourselves, you know, human, mammal, you know, emotional cognition, rational, irrational, um, blame, shame, regret, all these complicated emotions and parts of ourselves, the angry part, the sad part, the compassionate part, all of those yearning for something that can't be connected. You know, the, the ends can't ever come together in the way that you would want them to. So, as you said, it's not always about um, the loss of a person. You know, it could be the loss of a relationship. It could be the loss of a much-loved wedding that you didn't get to have due to the pandemic, you know, which then meant you weren't able to invite people because they'd passed on since, um, since your wedding was originally due. But those ends couldn't come together in a way that you wanted them to or you imagined them to. And we can get grief about things um, that you do have a choice about, but of course we get grief about stuff where you just have no control. Um, So that's my little understanding about how I think about grief. And it's not necessarily linked to our attachment to the personal thing that we've lost. Sometimes things can really catch us by surprise you know I was asked to talk um, about public grief as well recently you know and we record this in early July 2022 and that is when um, lovely bowel babe has recently passed away and you know we saw it with um, Caroline Flack as well you know there's a real mourning publicly for people that we never knew personally but we can still be moved by their distress and moved by the distress of others and because we're human because we're easily able to imagine what it might be like to lose your mother when you're a child or to go through that yourself or to lose your partner um, or your ex-partner in the case of um, Caroline um you know, it's very difficult. We can put ourselves in those positions really easily and it we can be equally moved by that, even if we didn't know the people personally. I'm struck by two things you said there that actually comes up in clinic, but I don't often think about in everyday life, that there may be multiple layers. So thinking about, I know we talk a lot about the pandemic, but it's had such a, a, a wide-reaching impact on so many, that you may have something that was cancelled, or moved as a result of the pandemic but you then may have like a secondary loss so people who weren't able to be there and and the significance the symbolism of who you want at your wedding for example but one of the things I know and from talking a lot and the media as well that sometimes there can often be guilt that that isn't something we should be grieving that maybe a wedding isn't important when perhaps there were people dying of covid so I guess one of the kind of tricky subjects I want to handle is being okay with what you're grieving and being okay with the emotions, big emotions often that you have around loss, but also that that you don't necessarily have to have personally known someone to feel that so that anyone listening to this podcast may be in a situation where they're confused and and not knowing if it's okay to have those feelings. But it sounds like it is. It really is. And did you choose to be a human, Tara? And so it's not your choice to have had this complicated, tricky human brain that we've got and we're only capable of having these kind of 
guilt, shame, blame, what if, you know, type thoughts because of our human brain. And so I really encourage people to lean into their feelings, whatever they are, and not judge themselves for them. You know, you're allowed to feel what you feel. You know, we're capable of irrational thoughts. We're capable of intrusive thoughts. We're capable of impulsive thoughts. You know, I recently supported someone um, personally through the experience um, where their own child had been involved in an accident, um, but um, other people's children were also in, you know, involved in that. And unfortunately, some of them um, weren't lucky enough to come through with their lives. But, you know, we know as mothers that in that position, you'd be thinking, gosh, I'm so gutted. I'm so sorry that people have lost their lives. But what we know is that we'd also, as mothers, be thinking, I'm so glad it wasn't my child. And so you're struck with that really painful self-judgment because it feels like you're wishing awfulness on someone else. And of course you're not, but you're allowed to be moved by the distress of others, but also be thankful for the pieces that you've got to keep. And it's really, really difficult. And sometimes just giving people permission to know that they're allowed to be glad about the outcome they did get, as well as sad and remorseful and regretful about other outcomes. So we think about um, mutual exclusivity, don't we? And with my clients, I often think about, I don't know if you studied biology, Tara. I did. So in biology, A-level, I learned this, there's the process of osmosis. Um, And I think sometimes this can be really helpful in just identifying what's going on for us. So you're lovely. I'm lovely. (laughs) We're both lovely. We're both psychologists. But we can both be lovely without it detracting from the other's loveliness because this is not an osmotic process. So with the process of osmosis, you've got fluid A here, fluid B here, and over time, they will mix together and become fluid C. They will become equally mixed because of the way that um, atoms and, you know, organisms all move together and matter changes and moves. But this is not the case with us as humans, because we can have mutual exclusivity And you can both, you know, you can have separate things and separate feelings about people, things, scenarios, settings, without it needing to dilute anything else. That's such an important point, isn't it? Because I think of everyone I've seen, I worked throughout the pandemic, I saw probably double the amount of people I would do because a lot of people were struggling and came back who previously were doing okay, did a lot of media and talking support groups, toolkits. So I talked extensively about managing guilt and shame. Actually, this is my personal situation. I'm struggling with homeschooling and I'm grieving the loss of my previous pre-pandemic life, for example, but it's not okay because actually maybe someone's got it worse off than me. And you actually, aside from the pandemic, it's quite common, isn't it, to come across people and say, maybe I shouldn't feel this because so-and-so has it so much worse or their situation, or maybe I can't then mention what I'm going through because so-and-so has got it worse and maybe what I feel isn't valid. So as psychologists, we like to talk about, you know, helping people normalise and knowing that their feelings are valid and okay. And I think you make some really interesting points there. I'm just wondering, how can we help people, if you have any wonderful nuggets of information there, how can we help people to perhaps begin to normalise some of these conversations, help people think a little bit more about stepping outside of that comfort zone and being beginning to say, this is what I'm experiencing, this is my grief get a little bit more of that validation 
Okay, well, I know you'll be approved, uh, approving of this, but it's conversations, you know, and not assuming, but starting conversations and letting people know that you're okay to talk about stuff. So um, my husband is very much of the persuasion of if they seem okay, and even if they don't seem okay, don't ask them, don't mention it, you know, because we don't yes. want to upset them. You know, why would you mention that? Why would you do that? Um, and I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm the opposite. You know, I want you to know you can talk to me about these things, even if it's tricky. And I, you know, I wanted to, the reason I put the Grief Collective book together was because when my dad was um, palliatively unwell and then after he died, I had lots of wonderful psychology and mental health colleagues in my phone um, messaging me lots of times. And that was really, really good because they get it. They know that you can still talk to somebody, even if it feels a bit painful, if it feels a bit ouchy. And what I think most people who are not in our profession don't necessarily get or don't you know, want to, they don't want to risk upsetting someone is that they're like, no, 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 <laughs> I'm just not going to say anything. You know, so I know that, you know, your legs hanging off and, you know, you've just lost someone very dear to you, but I'm going to make you look this way instead. And, you know, let's look at something that's a bit cheerier to look at rather than your tragedy and rather than your massive sadness and remorse and regret, because that feels a bit a bit complicated, a bit woolly, you know, and I don't want to go there. So what I would empower people to do is if you do want people to be able to feel comfortable talking to you is to just say, you know, I have lost I've lost someone really important to me recently. But I, I would like to talk about them. I'd still like to hear their name. You know, I'd lo I love stories about them that I didn't know, you know. So, you know, bring those to me. If you suddenly think, oh, I had a memory about you know, this time that we went here and there. I want to know it, you know. Let me know. Because reminiscing about someone or something that you've lost um, is really, really powerful. And I'm, I'm um, just remembering an old uh, an old Royal Mail advert where, you know, the thinking of you stuff. But I think it's, it's part of that as well. Um, holding people in mind, letting people know that you're thinking of them um, and just letting them pave the way for what they need and want from you um, and not assuming so you know somebody might lose their mother or their father or their sibling and you might be moved by your own distress imagining how you'd feel in that situation but we can't know what that person necessarily meant to them unless we are close to them um, and so we can't assume that it's the worst thing imaginable so sometimes just say well how how is that for you How's that working out? You know, I recently supported one of my family members, extended family, because her mum had passed away. And she said that some of the questions I'd asked her and the normalisation had been so useful that no one else had thought or known to say. You know, we were talking about, you know, being around somebody's bedside as as they die. And Hollywood would have us expect that that's all very peaceful and that's all really nice. And what a blessing it is to be there with someone you love at their last breath. And I will never stop being grateful for the fact that my dad didn't die in the middle of the night, that he died at 6.20pm and me and my brother and my mum and my brother's fiance and an unborn baby at the time were with him at that at that time. I will never be done being grateful for that. Um, but he died in a hospice and he had some medication. And so it was relatively 
peaceful. And yet I could still be grateful for being there, but distressed by what I had seen, because it's not all close your eyes, have a nice last breath. Sometimes it's traumatic to watch someone go through and traumatic to endure yourself, feeling so scared, lost, helpless. And so what I was able to do was I would say, I know that you are with her and I know that um, it may not always be Hollywood, you know, and uh, sometimes it can feel really traumatic and you can really get stuck in a double layer of grief because you've got trauma and grief. You know, and I think with grief, you'll always get some aspects of trauma, um, trying to, you know, catch yourself up and adjust to what you've been through and assimilate all those things. But if it's been, you know, an unexpected death or even if it's been an expected death, it's not nice. It's not nice. You know, we can make the best of a bad situation, can't we? But actually, we'll know what actually what I'd preferred. I don't want you to be able to say, well, at least I had a good innings, you know? I don't want that. What I would have wanted is what my grandfather had when he was 95. He spent his 95th birthday. Um, he spent his 90th birthday on the on the shed roof fixing it, you know? I'd have preferred he died when he was 95, but he spent his 90th birthday on his shed roof. I'd have preferred that for my dad, you know, who died when he was 71. So, yes, I can be grateful for the fact that I was there, for the fact that he met um, three of his now five grandchildren. I've only got two. <laughs> I haven't slipped any extra ones in. You don't know about Tara. I can be grateful for that, but also really sad that my dad doesn't get to take my boys out for their first pint, for example. You know, um, you can hold those things at the same time. So in a very, very long answer to your question, just allow people to tell you what they need and be open to have those conversations, even if they do feel not very pretty ones to have. Gosh, so much of what you said there. So I've had loss in my life and I was just thinking I hadn't actually thought about trauma in my own situation, having been with someone in their last literally a few minutes and kind of what support you might have had with that or even been able to recognize at the time but also again coming back to those kind of multiple layers of grief that there is the initial loss but all of the what might have been and you might then be kind of faced with kind of waves of emotion loss grief and I'm also wondering maybe other emotions hidden in there as well you know the feelings around not being able to do certain things in the future and, and unfairness and that can sometimes bring about frustration and anger but for people as well I'm just thinking allowing people listening to this to maybe begin to start to think about what's okay and what they need and perhaps maybe something there around autonomy how can we perhaps help people say what they want and what they don't want because when you said oh they've had a good innings that's something that really grated. when my grandfather died I was with him and it was really traumatic um, and I remember at the time having absolute admiration for my mum supporting him Important for us and our values to be with him no matter what but at the time struggling a lot and that really got in the way of how I grieved because I just couldn't get those images out of my head and I was quite young old enough to be there but not quite old enough in my life years to be able to recognize that that was trauma and probably not until many years later I think but we have to we have to really recognize what our you know when we look at the window of tolerance we look at the fight flight freeze flop and we also look at the um, human emotion of disgust we are supposed to have disgust for dead things and dead people because yeah. that keeps us safe. You know, being around dead animals and dead people could mean that we catch a disease and being around dying things 
you know, it makes it can feel like you want to. I just backed away from my own mic there, didn't I? Yes, I, I did too. <laughs> you know that. You want to back away to keep yourself safe. And so, you know, especially being a young child, you're going against your natural first instinct. And so what we recognize with people is when we are overriding our initial primary response, which is to run the hell away, we're having to use other responses, which then mean we may still stay in the hyper aware state. I don't know if I'm getting a bit complicated. I don't know who your main audience are, Tara, um, but go with me. It's worth following me. For people to understand the concept. yeah, so you've got the hyper awareness, hyper yes. arousal at the top of our window of tolerance. We've got the window of tolerance, which is like the nice jam in the sandwich, and at the bottom we've got the blue. We've got the hypo arousal where we're not aroused enough. And if we so we've got fight, flight, and appease at the top. But if we're not able to use the strategy that makes the most sense to us, we may actually flick into the bottom, which would be freeze, flop dissociate you know slump which is where you get yawning where you get kind of wishing you were anywhere else but here like dissociating um, or imagining you were somewhere else in order to cope and we see that with lots of people who've been treated very badly as children that in order to stay physically in a place which felt unsafe their body had to stay safe but their mind their body had to stay present but their mind didn't so you can end up with that dis dissociation and you could get you know maybe you had a little bit of that as a child as well it's terrifying being with a, a dying grandparent um it all smells probably funny in a hospital as well or wherever you were you know it's all a bit unusual so your primary response as a child probably would have been to run away but you're having to override that and so Almost some of the work we do in trauma is we kind of almost imagine and we reprocess as if the first thing had happened because then it gives the body a sense of, okay, all right, okay, I'm all right now, I'm safe, that's happened now. We, we think about it as a thwarted action. So if your primary response didn't get to happen, you need to reprocess that to unthwart the action. That's the thing that I want people to take away from today. So that actually grief quite often can be in parallel with trauma. And as you mentioned right at the beginning, actually, you know, some things we might have advance notice of something happening, a big adverse life event, a lot of somebody who's terminally ill, but there are other losses that are very acute. And there could be other events that we are grieving, you know, from right on the spectrum to losing someone through death in an acute way to suddenly a pandemic and being told, we can't have our wedding or we can't have this family event or something that's really important is how we kind of recognize so as psychologists part of our job is to do the psychoeducation to help people understand what's happening to therefore recognize it when it is or perhaps even recognize it in other people and then how do we behave as a result so for people listening to this podcast in terms of perhaps what they might recognize in someone and how they might be able to modify their behavior from the usual avoidance strategies that we've all done so I know some mornings I might see parents on the school path for example and I really want to say how are you but I might be pushed for time so I might do the old classic of how are you especially if I've known they've been through something but I might not be present and I might be still walking so I'm doing the classic thing of checking in but I'm not really waiting for that response so I was so interested in so many things you said there we could probably talk all day but how people can perhaps begin to recognize when their staff is getting in the way of how they're supporting someone who's grieving whatever it may be you know okay. how can people get round there might not be one magic answer but you know how can people begin 
to kind of lean in to their stuff. This is difficult. I don't know what to say. So that perhaps they do avoid that they've had a good innings or I'm sure it'll all be fine or that's nothing to worry about. It will pass. The things that actually I know a lot of us will find very invalidating. But said with the nicest intention, you know, yes. people aren't yes. willing, aren't, aren't um, wishing to invalidate people yeah. or, you know, I think there's a couple of different strands here. There's the attempt to try and prettify things and make the best of something. You know, it's like that, um, it's like CBT type stuff, isn't it, of like weighing things up and trying to make things even and, you know, the cognitive dissonance with trying to um, bring down your distress from here to have it be more, a bit prettier. So we're doing that by almost like gaslighting ourselves. You know, yes, you know, um, it's been really horrific what I've been through. But at least he got to walk me down the aisle, you know. And we're constantly bringing ourselves down when in actual fact we are just in heightened distress. And, we, you know, I am grateful that he got to walk me down the aisle. But in terms of the osmotic process, my distress about losing my father at the age of 71, I was 36, him walking me down the aisle doesn't detract from my distress. Do you see yes. what I mean? And so I think I think if we're finding ourselves distressed with news of someone else's um, loss, grief, really trying to think mindfully about what's going on can be useful. So sometimes I think with mindfulness, it's spoken about so much that people's eyes automatically glaze over. But all mindfulness is, is really trying to make sure that we're exactly in this moment right now. And what we know with trauma is that it's stuff from a different time that's leaking into now. So we can think a little bit about trauma as being, if you and I, you know, reflect on this interview in future, we will know that it took place in the summer because it's really hot in my house right now. It's you know? heat, for the <laughs> it's really, we're having a heat wave as we record this. We will remember it was a warm day, probably in 2022, you know, and it's the first time we'd met on camera face to face. And that's a nice thing because we're not in... We're comfortably within our window of tolerance, despite being a little sticky. Uh, we're, we're still within our yellow bit, still within the window of tolerance. But actually, what would happen if we weren't within that window of tolerance? And if this became traumatic, you know, if you were to spontaneously combust in front of me, Tara, I hope you won't. <laughs> if you were, that would be traumatic. And at that point, the bit that time and date stamps this experience would go offline. So my ability to remember that it's a warm day in July 2022 wouldn't be there because what would be foremost in my mind is how can I get in contact with someone that knows Tara to check she's okay? Or if we were in the same room, how can I get myself safe? You know, which also feels a bit complicated sometimes as well. You know, why was I thinking about my own safety when my friend Tara had spontaneously combusted in front of my eyes? I must be an awful human. But it's just how it works, isn't it? So when we are distressed by something or something really awful happens, the time and date stamping isn't happening, which means if you come to get that memory, it may not be in the filing cabinet drawer that you think it should be, or it might not be in any drawer at all, which means it's quite leaky. It's always around at any point of the time, day, overhearing someone talking in a supermarket, whatever, you can be triggered. And this thing from then 
can feel like it's sitting right in front of you and swamping everything. So if you're feeling like that resonates with you, you know, so I have had adequate therapy now about my father dying. I can look at his picture on the shelf there and just feel love you know and feel gratitude but also feel a little sadness about him not being here because this is a thing with with grief trauma is that we can work our way through some of the pain some of the distress but we can't ever bring the person back so we might never get to a zero distress rating but we can get to the point where we can live with that distress mindfully in the present you know so I don't need to be constantly consumed with images of his last moments or the weeks leading up to that. I can think about if I choose to, so I just did then. I went to the filing cabinet drawer where that's filed. I got it out. I had a look at it. And I'm emotionally connected to that, but then I can put it back. Whereas what is not happening when we're traumatised is we're not getting that ability to time and date stamp and use it as a reference library. It's all just feeling like soup. I think that's such an interesting point you're saying I mean, psychology we use a lot of scaling don't we I think it really helps I use a lot of metaphors in my work as well and I think scaling and metaphors together so the filing cabinet metaphor I use that a lot you know I'm the generation the social services filing cabinets and they're really good <laughs> for metaphors you know the multi-level cabinets that get a bit stuck sometimes or you know the, the hinges go a bit because we've got so much crammed in there that we might not want to look Those at little plastic bits drop off and then you don't yes. know where it's supposed to be Absolutely. So things that are not labelled is actually the maybe sometimes I'll be trying to get back to an artificial baseline, you know, that it's okay. We might have to make room for. So we talk a lot about that in um, acceptance and commitment therapy, which I do an, an awful lot of making room for things that sometimes I wonder whether people perhaps strive to be able to get rid of all the bad and actually how much that might take them away from being able to live a more value laden life, but, you know, making room for that grief and that being okay. Life isn't all pretty, you know, and what I do a lot of work around is distress tolerance and just yes. encouraging ourselves to sit with the unpretty as, and, and trying wherever possible not to distract ourselves from things that feel difficult. So, um, you know, people who are massively distressed about something that's happened in the past can be more likely to develop OCD, for example, and spend eight hours a day bleaching their walls in order to distract themselves from thinking about this painful thing. Whereas what we learn to do with people is to tolerate lower levels of distress initially, never going near the really big thing. Although what happens is if you say we're not going near the big thing, the big thing will turn up because it's like it's been summoned. Um, but we teach appropriate um, stabilization strategies so that we can actually get on board with soothing ourselves, validating ourselves, recognizing those thoughts and feelings, staying with them, tolerating them. And then once, we, once we're able to do that, people go, oh, I never thought I could do that. I never thought I could actually have this and hold this in my mind and I've managed it. So if I, if I can do that, what else can I do? You know, maybe next time I have a thought that feels really distressing, maybe I can just take a few breaths before I respond or before I distract myself and if I can do that then what can I do next time so I love that I know quite often as a psychologist we get asked for magic techniques what can you do to help me get rid of 
this anxiety or this depression and I'm sure you might get that with grief as well one of your areas of specialty but I was just thinking is there any little kind of nuggets for people in terms of beginning to be able to lean in so if someone's listening to this thinking that's me got some big feelings or smaller feelings even about losses and that could range from something that you haven't been able to do as a result of the pandemic or way of life that's perhaps changed right up to a loss through death a traumatic incident where can people start I wonder you know without just giving the magic there is no absolute magic answer but where can people perhaps start if someone listening at home is thinking that's me but I don't know how to start on that journey to begin to lean in and make room for those things okay it's simple there's not a lot that breathing doesn't help with and if the breathing doesn't help we breathe some more so what we do is we just make sure that our shoulders are dropped I say about not wearing them as earrings have you realized they're up here that's not where they're supposed to be and that's really important because when we are in fight um, flight mode what we do is we tend to bring our rib cage around to protect our our organs so if we're sitting in a hunched position it's telling the body we're in threat we're in danger. So if we can see there's no lions in the room, we can encourage our shoulders to drop a, drop down. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take a breath in through our nose. I'm going to do it now. Hold that for a moment if your lung capacity allows, and then breathe out through your mouth. Might be a bit noisy on my mic. Hold that out breath for a moment if you can. Breathe in through your nose. Hold that for a moment if you can. Breathe out through your mouth. What we're aiming to do is to try and get the out-breath ever so slightly longer than the in-breath. Go one once more. So I like to breathe in cycles of three with people. Breathe out. Once we've done that, we've practiced the skill that we're going to use forever. Okay. So once we can do that, we can control our breath. Um, this works. I'm not going to go into it, but this works because of the complicated way that our heart works, believe it or not. Um, and yeah, trauma responses, but it just it soothes everything. So this is a balanced, soothing rhythm breathing. That's why it works. So you don't need to know the nuts and bolts behind it, but that's why it works. Once we can do that, we can then begin to hold in mind a little bit of something that feels a bit challenging. So you don't need to hold it right here. You don't need to hold it way over there, the other side of the room. What we need to do is hold it at a comfortable middle distance. So the next stage is whilst breathing, hold something in mind that you like and do it right here. Hold something in mind that you like and send it way over there. Focus on it there. And then hold something in mind that you like and hold it in the middle distance. Because we don't want to practice with something that feels distressing, you know, when we're when we're manipulating and getting used to that skill. So once we're comfortable with breathing, holding it in mind at a middle distance for three breaths in, three breaths out, we then become amazing. <laughs> it is, I think it's the key holder benefit and skill really to beginning to deal with anything that feels distressing. I think one of the takeaways I had other than feeling quite relaxed actually at the moment is that when you're facing uncertainty and grief quite often can make the world seem really uncertain, can't it? Is that what can we do that is in our control? Sometimes breathing exercises can give you just a little bit of control. I can think about how I breathe in, how long I hold it, how I breathe out. And I know a lot of my patients say at the beginning, my breathing's not gonna work, that's too simple, or it's not sparkly enough, it's not clinical enough. But actually when your brain's overwhelmed, something very basic is really quite profound. 
can't it? So I think for me, that's something really important for people to take away that, you know, you can be in control of your breathing. You can practice mm-hmm. that. And you can do it somewhere really safe for you as well. So I know a lot of my patients will say they do it in their favourite chair or they'll try and do it somewhere where they know perhaps they're not going to be disturbed for a few moments, put their phone on silent, that kind of thing as well. I think for a lot of people as well, one of the things I really, I think myself struggle with the pandemic was the spiky profile of it we love to use that word in psychology don't we and for some people there is that uncertainty what is going to happen what will happen to my way of life so I think there are a lot of people that are grieving what has been but also what might be and also with loss as well just thinking friends people I've known who weren't able to have funerals in the way they want who weren't able to to mark that myself and my family we had a, a loss that we weren't able to say goodbye in the way that we would have liked to but people are needing support to be able to lean into that and what is that I know a lot of my patients will say what is lean in psychologists always talk about that so it's so lovely to have a kind of a lived example so thank you for that one of the things that I was going to say is particularly if when I did my training there was a model in terms of stages of grief that people might go to but things have moved on a little bit and um, we try and move away from being too prescriptive about what grief looks like but I'm just thinking if there's anyone who is listening to this who may be struggling whether there's just anything that people should look out for that might help them therefore reach out for some more professional support. We still know about general stages of grief but what we know is that it's different for everybody and we can dive yes. backwards forwards you know headlong back through them at any stage even within a few minutes you know so you might feel angry at one point you might you know try and just find, find yourself trying to work out you know what the heck has happened the next moment you know um but if you so when i worked in adult mental health services we often wouldn't accept a grief referral until it had been at least six months however if it had been incredibly traumatic then you know there would be exclusions to that because what we know is that losing someone you loved a great deal is always going to be really destabilizing you're gonna feel quite awful you know you're gonna really miss them you're gonna mourn them you're gonna be trying to make those ends come together you're gonna be yearning and you know words of comfort may not feel that comforting because you just want the person who you've lost you know the thing that you've lost and you can't have that But if you find that this is impacting on you to the extent that your well-being is impacted on and your your number of problems are rising and your, you know, maybe a risk to yourself or to others and and your functioning, if you're functioning, your ability to um, get things done that you'd normally do are being impacted on, that's an indication that your mental health is being impacted on currently. And you don't deserve to suffer in the way that you are. And so what I would suggest is you reach out to your GP or to someone you trust to talk about the changes that you've noticed. And it might be that you would benefit from a period of talking therapy. And that can look like different things for different people. It might look like um, finding some sessions with um, with a local grief charity or mental health, you know, IAPT or something like that would be really useful or just sessions with someone who's compassionate. You know, I think that compassion focused therapy can do, go such a long way in grief. So, um, yeah, if you especially if you're noticing your risk to yourself or others, you need to you need to get get hold of the GP really as a first port of call. Um, or if you're seriously concerned about your own or someone else's well-being, go to A&E or, or call um, 111 or 999 for advice about safeguarding. Thank you. Because quite often people are listening to things and don't always 
get the support with, where do I go now? How do I know? And also if someone's listening who's supporting someone, that's a really good point, isn't it? That you might be recognising some of those things and someone I'm not sure what to do. So you have a fantastic book called The Grief Collective, which I absolutely love. I'm such a huge fan of personal narrative, which I guess is kind of the brainchild behind this podcast. If people want to read that and also find out a bit more about you, how can they find you? Sure. So my website is goodthinkingpsychology.co.uk. I am pretty much everywhere on social media. Most of my handles are Dr. Marianne Trent, so you can find me there. Um, The book itself, The Grief Collective, Stories of Life, Loss and Learning to Heal, is available via Amazon. And I'm asking all of my guests, if there is one adversity takeaway that you could leave us with in terms of grief, what would that be? Good question. I would say that it's okay to go forward and find a life that feels richly rewarding and satisfying and that by doing that you are not doing a disservice to your love and affection for the person or thing that you've lost. Um, You're allowed to be happy, you're allowed to be well, you're allowed to laugh joyfully Um, and I think with grief it can make us feel like we shouldn't or we couldn't or that if we're able to be happy without this personal thing in our lives that must say something about us that we're an awful human but we're not we're allowed to still be deeply connected to the person we've lost and really wish that they were still here with us or the thing that you've lost but we're also allowed to live joyfully in the future and the present what a wonderful dose of compassion to end with I think we all need a bigger dose of self-compassion every day, don't we? Being kind to ourselves, that it's okay to feel and it's okay to live. What a wonderful ending point. Dr. Marianne Trent, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I will make sure when we're on social media that we'll put all your links on so people can find out because they need to find out more about you and what you do and the other various strings to your bow. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Psychologist podcast. It's so lovely to have you here. I'm Dr. Tara Quintrillo and you can find me at drtara.co.uk. You'll see everything I'm up to, free resources, my media work and my new COVID recovery clinic as well. Remember to please rate and review my podcast. It really helps people to benefit from the narratives of overcoming adversity if they know where to find us. The Adversity Psychologist podcast helping you one step at a time.